welcome to More Devotedly, a podcast for people who see the arts as a force for positive, progressive change. I'm Douglas Dietrich. This is Volume 4, Episode 6. As I speak, we're just a few weeks from the 2020 election. Maybe you've already voted, but if you haven't, I hope you have a plan to vote and that you'll vote Biden-Harris and for Democrats down the ticket. Why? There are a lot of reasons, and I hope you've got your own. One reason that you can take with you after listening to this conversation is that the community of marginalized artists that my guest, Joni Renee Whitworth, serves, and the many other Americans like them, will have a shot at a much better future than under a Republican president and a Republican Senate. With Democrats in power, we won't have perfect solutions to our problems. We won't have perfect government. We won't have perfect representation. And we won't have a government that hasn't made mistakes in the past. But we will have a government that at least recognizes that the freedoms that Americans believe in aren't afforded equally to queer people, people with disabilities, people of color, and poor people. And that we have the will and the capacity for a more equitable future. Joni Renee Whitworth, who uses they-them pronouns, is a poet and the executive director of Future Prairie, a queer creative studio and nonprofit artist collective. We talked about how their organization has changed during the pandemic and what the value of a nonprofit dedicated to marginalized artists is, and how an arts organizer finds space and time for their own work as they support the work of others. I was struck by a moment where Joni describes seeing queer people in a historic photo, saying that the level of freedom she sees in their eyes is a way to understand equality for marginalized people. Sometimes progressives and moderate Democrats talk too little about freedom. We cede that territory to conservatives, but we shouldn't, and artists can show the reason why. In our plays, in our music, in our sculpture, in our poems, we can show how life could be. We can show that freedom is for everyone, and that freedom is complicated and messy, but its importance is fundamental. We're only a shadow of ourselves without it, but with it, we are powerful. I'm inspired by how Joni has been showing that future in her work and by helping a community of artists to realize their own versions of it. Here's the episode. Joni Renee Whitworth, thanks so much for joining me on More Devotedly. I'm very excited to talk to you. I think we have some things in common, both being arts organizers and being people that do our own creative work as well. So first off, just welcome and thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. I would love for you to kind of just talk about what you do in your own words and, and introduce yourself to, to the listeners. Sure. Yeah. My name is Joni Renee Whitworth and I was born in Portland, but I grew up out in rural Oregon on a farm, a Christmas tree farm, actually. and definitely developed a lot of my art practice out there. Um, I was closely connected with some of the performing arts groups in Yamhill County, Willamette Valley, all around McMinnville, um, even in Sheridan, out towards the coast. And um, 
developed myself as an artist, primarily as a writer and as a poet. And then when I was a teenager, I moved around a lot. Um, I left home when I was uh, just turning 16 and uh, went to live in Tel Aviv, Israel. And I was in a band and I traveled around the Middle East working for a nonprofit. And then when I came back, I didn't want to, the farm that I would have come home to was gone. We lost the farm in the recession. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't really a place to land in Portland anymore. So, or in Oregon anymore. So I uh, ended up going to LA and mm. becoming an arts organizer down there, uh, south of LA, down by in uh, Santa Ana, which is in Orange County. And then eventually decided to move back to Portland, where I uh, continued my personal art practice, but also got a little more involved in the community organizing side of the arts, and uh, eventually founded my nonprofit, which is called Future Prairie. And uh, we can talk more about yeah. that it was originally <laughs> the intention behind it was originally quite narrow in scope it was supposed to be an artist collective of just queer artists mm -hmm. uh, but it grew into a lot more than that i've seen video of some of the shows that you guys did kind of multidisciplinary shows and and of course you know covid19 has hit could you tell about what kind of things have changed and how have you guys responded to the situation? Yeah. So originally our main production that we worked on for Future Prairie was a seasonal live show and it took place on the equinox and the solstices. Mm. So summer, fall, winter, all that. And we would put together um, kind of a, a show around a certain theme often having to do with that seasonal shift. So we would um, come together and build a community altar and have different performances and um, not only artistic performance, but, but also guest lecturers um, in the style of a uh, Chautauqua, which mm. is a, an old format of gathering that was not only aesthetic, but also educational and originally often also had spiritual or religious aspects. Ours didn't, but I do think anytime queer people are coming together to make and share community and make and share art, it can be a somewhat spiritual experience. So I was interested in kind of exploring that um, outside of a religious context. So with COVID, you know, obviously we had to cancel the live shows and we're not able to gather in person. And it's kind of funny that we actually had our largest show ever, um, both, you know, largest in terms of it was in the biggest venue we've ever had. It was a huge, huge historic uh, space downtown and also our biggest audience we've ever had. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and then immediately right after that uh, it was when quarantine hit. So yeah. For a while, I was testing out a few different formats of things. We did a couple Zoom shows. We had Zoom kind of workshops. And then we also did a show and tell, which was really cute, where people just showed up and showed what they had been working on artistically from home. But ultimately, I think that is not the way forward for us. Um, this, it's just not as meaningful. The engagement isn't quite there. Um, and we don't have the production facilities or equipment to really pull something off that is you know, a, a high aesthetic value or to the, the quality that I would really prefer to see. Right. So I think for now, I'm not going to pursue that. Luckily, we have a couple other things we can do that are easy to make for free or, you know, very cheap, which is a podcast that kind of features local Portland artists um, and some online content like short films. But I think it sounds like after speaking to everybody, most people agree that 
making little short films is probably the way forward, no matter what form of art they're actually doing, whether it's dance Mm. or poetry or whatever else. Why did you think that? Well, (laughs) I asked around a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I've, Ask, you know, obviously the artists themselves who are in the collective, but also have really reached out to my friends and mentors. I've been really fortunate to connect with some older mentors in uh, community organizing and art spaces and, and just try to get their advice and, and, you know, try to be candid with them and say the Zoom thing is not it. That's just not where it's at for us. It's mm-hmm. not it's not cathartic. Um, I don't know. I hope that people can continue to innovate on that art form and, and, and find a way to have catharsis in that experience. But uh, I've been attending things left and right throughout quarantine and I haven't experienced that feeling yet. Mm. <laughs> so, um, so I think the reason it was informed by somebody I spoke with over at the Portland Art Museum who works on their Northwest Film Center. And she kind of said, you know, I've looked through your work your work as a poet and all that and everything else you're up to. And I really think you might want to consider short films. Film is the only industry that has any money for artists and it's the easiest to share online. It's the easiest to consume for free. And it's a format where you can ultimately control the quality of your output. As the quarantine has gone on and you know, that we went through that kind of early stage of, and, and by we, I mean like everybody kind of went through this early stage of, like, oh, I got to live stream everything. Um, and, you know, I'm a musician. So there were lots of musicians like, you know, streaming a concert every night from their bedroom, um, which is cool. Uh, but it was never appealing to me. I never really haven't done it yet. And I'm not really going to. Um, I've kind of instead gone more towards just, I you know, I had to get a little bit more gear, but, you know, kind of just setting up things so that I could produce at home and and produce recordings that I felt good about um, and making a podcast is, has been a big thing. So I just released an episode um, featuring an interview with Henri, uh, who I know is involved in the organization and um, his uh, Living in the Light project is Future Perry's you know, big thing right now. And yeah, so it's I, kind of our main, <laughs> our yeah. main, main project of, of the year. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's a big project. I mean, I've noticed that, you know, there's a music video, which is really beautiful. And, and I'm very much looking forward to seeing the documentary. Um, and so, you know, Future Perry is doing a fundraiser for that. Um, and I'll, you know, that, that link is in the episode with Henri and it'll be in this one as well. So I definitely encourage folks to go support there. It'd be great to see that. Um, yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks for saying that. Yeah, absolutely. We really need all the help we can get. Sure. Yeah, it's a big, takes a village, as they say. But um, I wanted to ask you just, you know, about that project in particular. What, you know, what was compelling to you about that, and and why did you feel it was a good fit for Futureberry? Well, for a number of reasons. It's interesting. So he's he's a close personal friend of mine, and uh, I think we've been kind of going back and forth for a while on, you know. And this is even pre-quarantine, you know, what should we make? How can we take our art to the next level? We got, we had a few different ideas of like maybe going around and having him sing. Uh, he's an opera singer. So we had thought maybe he could walk through the forest and the gorge and like sing opera at trees or, and then I could like put my poetry on top of it, or maybe I could write a book and then he could like sing the poems or kind of thinking of all these different ways that we could collaborate. Hmm. And then, after quarantine started, when the Black Lives Matter protests started up, he ended up actually taking on a bit of a leadership role in that environment and leading some of, you know, leading songs basically mm-hmm. at protests. Right. And so 
it was interesting because we had already been having conversations for months and months about, you know, um, his work as a marginalized performer and if it would be interesting to somehow do some kind of documentation of his experiences of racism in the industry that he experienced. And all of a sudden there was this cultural moment that just happened to come along when we had already been uh, investing so many hours into those conversations. So it just seemed like a more appropriate way to spend our time and attention. And I think it gave everybody on the cast the and the crew, you know, an opportunity to devote themselves to something that actually felt meaningful when they'd mm-hmm. been not just cooped up in their homes and, and really wanting to create something, but also really wanting to dedicate themselves to supporting the movement in a meaningful way. You know, I think when you ask a starving artist to donate $5 to a cause, it's quite an ask, you know, more and more, I'm just really questioning if that model is even the right model. And that might sound hypocritical, right? Because I'm still running that that crowdfunding campaign <laughs> for our project, but but I don't think it's the right model ultimately. And I and I don't think we should be soliciting donations from our direct immediate community when the community that we serve is marginalized performers, um, almost all of whom are working class or below the poverty line. So to bring it back, I think all of those people involved in our collective were so so hungry for something to contribute to where you could actually contribute your your actual talent, you know. So for designers to be able to design, for, you know, lighting people to be able to bring out the perfect light. I mean, that music video is so beautiful. And one of, one of the things I love about it is the incredible lighting mm. and the sound quality. So um, I think that's why it just was a perfect confluence of moments and, and, and the cultural timing was right. Yeah, I mean, something that can make something so much more powerful is when there's that perfect match between... I suppose the message and the moment, the way that that it's been put together, I think it has a lot of that that quality to it, which is really exciting and has been really interesting to talk about with Henri. You said something really fascinating that I want to follow up on, and that was about this idea of how do we do these fundraisers that we do? It's a big issue, and I I you know I. I follow uh, this, um, oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name of it now, but it's kind of this trying to put forward this philosophy of community-based fundraising rather than like Hunger Games fundraising that's like more competitive and and kind of reinforcing. Like hierarchies. The one that I'm involved with, I wonder if it's the same one. I'm, so I'm involved with one called Community-Centric Fundraising. Yes, that's it. And mm-hmm. they've, they're starting up like the Portland chapter and all that. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. uh-huh. It's it's great. I mean, it's really good conversations are happening in there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then, you know, I think it, you know, one thing that's interesting is I, I think so often what we run into is like, you know, folks that are, uh, you know, connected to the artists and they're connected to the work and maybe they're artists themselves and then they get into being arts organizers and administrators. What they find is that the money comes from, you know, the folks who have money, which is in our society is, is so often, you know, older white people. And so then kind of what inevitably, and maybe not, it's, maybe it's not inevitable, but what often happens is that, you know, then the value of the, of the values of the art tend to be shaped a little bit by that when, you know, maybe the people that are making the art are not necessarily older, wealthy white people and often are not. So I, so, I, you know, just hearing you, kind of grapple with that a little bit in just in your own work and your own 
community is really interesting. And I'm, and I'm just curious if you feel like, you know, what is, do you have a, I, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not expecting you to have all this worked out because this is hard stuff, but um, you know, what thoughts do you have about addressing that problem for future prairie? Yeah, it's a big one. I mean, as much as, I mean, I would love to radically reimagine how arts and culture are funded in the future. Um, it's been pretty wild to see when this federal CARES money comes down and is slowly dispersed and distributed throughout the state through different community organizations and also just through the city itself. There have been a few opportunities this year to apply for grants, including one that came out through the Oregon Cultural Trust. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> some of the organizers I've been speaking to have been saying, yeah, these COVID grants are way, way more money than we ever would have gotten before, you know, before COVID. And um, it's, I mean, it's just kind of funny and sad, right? Because that's, I wish Mm -hmm. we didn't have to go through such a catastrophe to get the resources that we actually need. All the systems that I grew up believing in have fallen apart within my lifetime so far. It's like, this is, you know, going to be the second recession that I'll have lived through. So why not leverage that opportunity to make something entirely new? If we know that the system is not serving anyone appropriately, why not come together and and build an entirely new cultural network? Especially when I think about these big, big funders like Meyer Memorial Trust or Mm -hmm. um, yeah, the OCT or um, what other ones are there? Multnomah County Cultural Coalition. They, they get so big that I think they're quite disconnected from their actual on the ground audience. And the average, you know, working artists has barely even heard of these organizations, much less has the grant writing experience to understand how to apply for a grant. So I'd love to see um, maybe just more um, field workers. And I know that's a lot to ask for because Mm. every employee is an expense, you know, but just people who can, be paid to engage with the community and share resources and teach people how to write grants. If we do want to stay with the grant making and grant giving model or work together to figure out a new, better model. I know RAC is going through that regional arts and culture council. They have changed up their grant structure quite a bit, Mm -hmm. um, especially through the development of the new catalyst grant, which is only three grand. It's very easy to apply for. It's pretty easy to win one. And the idea is that it's a catalyst to getting your art making practice off the ground and running. And then, you know, later you'll be qualified to apply for bigger and harder grants. So I love that. I mean, three grand is a very small amount of money when it comes to, you know, a major artistic endeavor, but it's a huge amount of money to an emerging artist. Oh yeah. That makes sense. And, and I think you're right that like, I, I think that, um, so often, grant makers sometimes and sometimes major donors as well, they kind of forget because they're dealing with very large amounts of money. They sometimes forget how um, impactful these grants can be. And, and, and that causes two weird things to happen. Like one is like, it's way too hard to get those first grants. Like the, you know, the, your very first one, um, you know, it's very elusive because people just don't understand the process. They don't, there, there's so many bars, barriers to entry. And then the, on the other side of it, um, 
the more experienced um, organizations that just happen to be small, and I I run one of them. Um, you know, we work. Yeah, I had to work really hard to get like a three thousand dollar grant or less, um, and it's just punishing. And it, and it's tough because I, you know, you want there to be some accountability, but at the same time, it's like if there's too much accountability. We end up just punishing the people that we're trying to help. Yeah, it also becomes a bit patronizing as well. I mean, I think I understand that that model of thinking of like, we're going to have check-ins every week and we need screenshots and PDFs of every single receipt. And um, and then at the end, you need to like do all these public performances. I think that there probably was a time and place for that. But it does feel, at least in 2020, a little condescending. Like, we don't have to ask a struggling artist to prove that they're struggling. We can assume if they live in the city of Portland in 2020, they're probably struggling. So, so in a way, it kind of <laughs> removes some of the burden of proof from the artist and it, it becomes truly more of a gift. It allows, it grants agency back to the artist to say, you probably know how to spend this money. And I mean, I can think of so many examples, but even just for Future Prairie, like so many times I'll bring one of the people in our collective in for some kind of art meeting and then find out that they haven't had a good meal that day. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, is it a valid or an invalid expense to use future prairie funds to buy them supper? Um, I think maybe based on our original charter, as we wrote it in the beginning of January, 2018, probably that would not have been a valid expense, but as it is now, I'm, I'm way more interested in a, some type of model of community caretaking where we could say our goal is to support you as an artist. So if you need a paintbrush, we can pay for that. Mm -hmm. And if you need breakfast, we could pay for that too. Yeah. That makes total sense. That sounds completely sane to me <laughs> in, in a really yeah. good way. Totally. Yeah, yeah. I would love to see if there's some type of, uh, you know, a gift, a gift economy or um, some, some type of a non- market economics where we can give each other different forms of exchange and and trust each other to know that there might be some type of immediate or future rewards what well, maybe the maybe the reward is just that the artist continues to exist and is able to create art you know that that mm -hmm. has an intrinsic reward Well, Joni, one of the things that I'm working on kind of with this group of episodes that I'm doing right now is I wanted to talk to as many artists in Portland as I could that kind of represent difference in all kinds of different ways, um, you know, in the work they do and the communities they work with and also about their identity as a, as a human being. What I wanted to do is to give all of these artists a chance to talk about Portland right now because Portland is in the news, right? And so what I wanted to do is ask you, how do you see Portland right now um, in this moment? Um, and that can mean, you know, whatever that means to you. I'm just curious to, to hear you talk about this place at this moment in your words and to, to share that with the audience. It's tough. You know, I read, I read that New York Times article about how if everyone's going to be work from home forever, uh, people who live in cities are kind of questioning, why do I live here? Right? right. And so it's kind of this predicted, or maybe it's already happening, a secondary uh, urban flight. And I think that that will probably happen for most of the um, tech class, you know, the ability mm -hmm. to move out to a beautiful 
piece of land and work on the internet and make tons of money but not have high expenses it seems like a fine reason to to change up your living circumstance but um it, it's funny even though i was born in portland i haven't really lived here full time i didn't live here full time until closer to 2013 so i'd say i've only really really considered myself a resident of truly of downtown for 7 years Mm-hmm. And I guess it's early to say, but I, I think no matter what happens with the election or jobs, I mean, I've already lost jobs because of COVID and found other ones and whatever comes along, I, I don't anticipate wanting to leave Portland. Um, and I think about somebody like Chloe Daly, certainly somewhat controversial character. I know that she's not perfect and not everybody agrees with her politics, but, you know, she does care a lot about the arts and, when I see what she goes through to protect and defend the community and artists in particular, I don't know. I just feel really inspired by what she is able to get done. And then also frightened by the severity of the hate and the mean comments and the online hazing that are directed towards her. Sure. Yeah. So I guess I'm not bringing up you daily to like hold her up on a pedestal or as a hero, but I'm just thinking about, okay, here's a real Portlander. You know, she she ran Reading Frenzy for years and years and years. She she is truly from this community. Yeah, and now a Portland city councilor. For the for anyone that may not be familiar, right? Yeah. So I think about that in terms of like if we're going to live here, what is our responsibility to the community? You know, if we do choose to stay, how can we stay engaged and and make sure that it's a um, healthy, safe, relatively happy place to live and a place to create. And I do think artists play a huge, huge role in, in all of those functions of a, of a healthy, happy city, not just in making little cute things to look at, you know, doing the nutcracker. Right, right. <laughs> not to throw shade on the nutcracker, but I think we can uh, maybe move beyond that now. And as far as kind of following that thread of, of like making Portland a better place to be, you know, Future Prairie began and, and will continue to be, you know, a home for artists that kind of represent marginalized communities. And I, I wanted to ask you, you know, another question about that, like for, for folks who maybe, you know, and I, I would count myself among this group of people that, you know, I, I'm, I'm a jazz musician, which maybe um, puts me <laughs> in a certain cat category of marginalization. Um, but I'm, I'm joking about that, but um for folks who who don't maybe share that and don't maybe have that personal experience of 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 feeling what that's like on a daily basis, what's the value and what's the reason and and why were you compelled to create this home for these artists that you're working with? Yeah, we'll see where it really goes long term. I mean, for now, so much of the community the community conversations in that arena tend to center almost making exclusionary spaces or spaces that are just for people of some certain group so they can come together and and share space and time and values maybe and then ideally you know if they're artists create something that could be maybe shared more broadly but i guess i I do wonder like what is the value of that beyond that 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 first level like for example the first ever vietnamese american author just got nominated to the board of the uh, pulitzer prize Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's never happened before. It's, it's the, the first kind of representation um, in that space. And I think that's pretty much where we're at. 
across all marginalized identities and in almost all art forms is there's still many opportunities to be the first. You know, there's the first best-selling young adult trans uh, fiction book recently. I forget the title mm-hmm. of it, but, you know, there's so many opportunities to be the first this or that along the lines of your marginalization and your identity. So that's great that, you know, working through that has already been a, you know, decades long project. And I imagine it won't be complete anytime soon, but I do like to think, about the long-term future and what will it look like after that? Will it be that we're just integrated? Will it be that we're globalized? Will we have a true commonality of like a shared value system or will it be like we're seeing in the political conversation, we're more polarized and divided than ever. So I guess, yeah, you asked about the value of it. For now, I think the value is just that I live in Portland and I know these people and they're suffering and I'm interested in creating space for them to share their art and money, basically finding, hunting down money and distributing it so they can continue to make their art. Yeah. That's the immediate need. But I don't think it is the 50 year plan. It's just a five year plan. Mm. It's a great reason to be doing that, certainly in the short term. And that may be the reason in the long term. Hopefully not, though. Things I think are, are moving more in the direction of, you know, like a greater acceptance of difference. Um, an understanding that not everyone is going to be the same and that that's okay. And that definitely that we stop punishing people for being different in all these different ways. So yeah, it it was actually really interesting to hear you talk about like, okay, what's the 50 year vision of this? And I, and I totally get that we don't know what that's going to look like. um, But it's the right thing to be thinking about. I think if you looked 50 years in the past, like, you know, so we were looking at around 1970, I think my math is correct there. So, I mean, and, you know, I wasn't even alive. So somebody looking ahead in 50 years into the future and they saw the way things are now, they'd be like, the things we did here mattered. They did change the trajectory somewhat and then created this realization that there is a lot more work to do and that we need to, we need to work much harder to change the way we see our culture and, and to make it a welcoming and accepting culture. And I think it's really interesting and informative and inspiring how you are looking further into the future and, and looking around you right now and saying, what are we doing? And, and you know, how can we move forward in a better way? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I wish, if, I'm, if anything, I wish it were more linear. But in fact, I think it's not linear at all. Um, yeah. And I'll give you an example. You know, if, so within my lifetime, the, the kind of queer narrative is that didn't have gay, gay marriage and now we do. So we're very lucky and we should be thankful and grateful and all these things. And we didn't used to be able to have all these rights and now we do. But, you know, the more I've looked into longer term histories and more studies, especially um, even just recently, I, I took a class on uh, queer Russian history. You know, Russia now is one of the most dangerous places in the world to be queer. Mm. But, um, I actually saw with my own eyes real photographs from a history professor of queer parties, visibly, blatantly, explicitly queer parties uh, from the, you know, the beginning of the 1900s. And the freedom that I witnessed in those photos is at least on par with what we have here in Portland today. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that's a lot for me to kind of assume or, you know, project maybe onto just seeing a few photos, but I, and hearing a few stories. But I, 
I think just what I saw and the comfort in those people's eyes, I would say I know trans people today in the city of Portland who would not feel that much comfort and freedom walking down Burnside. Mm. So that makes me think a lot of these linear narratives that we've learned are not true. And there is a bit of a burden on us to investigate what is true and have a a little bit more like a, a broader picture for the rights that we want instead of being like, you know, oh, thank you for finally handing us gay marriage. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, and again, like, I, you know, I worked on the Oregon United for Marriage campaign, so it's not that I don't think it's meaningful, but I I don't want to be painted into a corner of having to say thank you for something that should be um, a (laughs) spiritual right, a human right. Yeah. Wow, that is is really fascinating. Um, This idea of just getting that much from a photograph. I mean, it's it's interesting as a historical document, but I think that that the way that it kind of draws a parallel to Portland in 2020 is fascinating. Um, and and the example you give of of where there's not that same level of acceptance for trans people, that's a great example that kind of defeats that linear narrative where we say, oh yeah, there's a straight line from, you know, like we like what we were talking about, 50 years in the past. There's a straight line from 1970 to 2020, and it goes straight up and and. It's going to go straight up in the future, and and I think what we've seen with the president right now, I think we've seen how fragile those things can be, and how that the the straight line is not at all inevitable. That's one of the reasons why I, you know, just wanted to engage artists um, to talk a bit about political and cultural ideas and and how their work kind of connects to that because it's. I, I just want us to be involved in the conversation as a community and and the way that you put that made that really clear. And so so thank you for doing that. Absolutely. My pleasure. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I think art, artists have a, a hugely vital role to play. And, you know, they they're so good at dreaming and scheming. That you know, that's <laughs> our that's our slogan, the mantra of Future Prairie is keep dreaming and scheming. Mm. And, you know, I say that all the time, I'm almost texting it to people and that's, that's our best gift, you know, our ability to create on a dime to help imagine and envision what the future might be. It's such a privilege. It's such a gift. And I also think it's our responsibility. Um, That word is really, really controversial. (laughs) So not all artists like when I use it, Mm. but to share, to share and give back and create against the the violence and the degradation of this year creatives are tasked with generating an equal and opposite response Mm. yeah and even though many of them are coming from a position of disadvantage in in having to do that but but i agree with you that that i hope that we can i i think that we must and it's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> that's, I think that's the thing I've, I've learned. It's like, you know, I spent a couple hours phone banking uh, a weekend or two ago. And I was like, oh, this is, this is hard. <laughs> um, and, you know, so, but, and then also just putting, putting those emotions into the work as well is, is really challenging too. I had just one more question I want to ask you. And that was about the the first time I uh, saw you perform to kind of set this up a bit. Um, as I've gotten, you know, kind of further and further into being an arts organizer and, you know, a fundraiser and all the things that it has taken to, you know, 
help my organization grow and and to try to do more to build the arts infrastructure here for the jazz musicians that I work with. As I've gone through that process of of kind of learning new skills and all, all the things that, that have nothing to do with the original kind of reason that I got into it, which which was to just play music and and write music. I'm a composer as well. And so there's this conflict of being an organizer and also being an artist yourself. Um, that it's just it's just very difficult to be able to do both effectively because um, they both demand so much time and energy and dedication. Um, and so, uh, you know, so it just reminds me that I, I saw you, I think it was at the Risk Reward um, Festival, and I think it was, uh, I think a year or two ago. Um, yeah, a couple summers ago. Right. Mm-hmm. And I and I saw you perform. Uh, it was kind of a solo performance piece. And you know, one thing that I've talked a little bit about on this podcast is that I'm the father of an autistic son, and you know, for him, uh, it's it's just been it's been such this amazing experience. And we have a neurotypical daughter as well, and she has <laughs> she has her own challenges, um, both for for us as parents and navigating our family as it is. Um, but you know, one one thing that um, you, as an adult autistic artist, um, putting your own experiences and also bringing in some history of the challenges and and mistreatment that autistic people have faced over time, finding a way to put that into this piece, and there was like music and dance and all these things and storytelling, and I found it just super memorable and and also really powerful for me in my role as a father. And so I just wanted to say that I loved it. And, and it would be fun um, if you could maybe tell the audience a little bit about it and, and just talk about your own work and how's it going kind of despite, you know, that tension between being an organizer who's supporting a whole community of artists and also being an artist yourself and, you know, still needing to find time and space for your own work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. Yeah. That, that piece is really close to me. It's uh definitely still in progress as it as i performed it then it was a 20 minute um solo show um basically a short play called mm-hmm. self defense and um it is about um autistic experiences autistic history and just neurodivergent thinking patterns and it kind of plays with some of these themes of self-defense when a woman or a femme presenting person goes to take what we would consider a self-defense class or a workshop you're most often learning about physical moves and jabs that you can do in case a bad guy runs out of the night and grabs you off the street and i actually I when I, I first took one, I thought, oh, there's something to this. There's something really interesting here that we're not talking about the actual thing, but we're kind of circling around it. And so I, I actually took a bunch more. I took a bunch of self-defense classes from a bunch of different people to explore this idea. And um, my piece kind of talks about how the things that autistic people need to defend themselves against hmm. are not those. The likelihood of us getting snatched off the street and broad daylight in the city of Portland is quite low, especially for me as a white person. My my whiteness protects me a bit there as well. That's another privilege. Mm-hmm. But it is very likely that an autistic person will be exposed to systemic abuse or medical abuse. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know, shortly after kids get their diagnosis, often at a very young age, they are put on life-altering, mind-altering addictive drugs immediately. 
with very little consultation for other options. And so, yeah, the piece talks a little bit about that. And I loved it as it was performed then. I, I think that there is an opportunity to develop the work further. I hope it could someday be a book or, um, God, I guess a short film. I don't, <laughs> I don't really want to be a filmmaker, but I feel like I have to, you know, because of COVID. I don't, I don't know anything about film, but. You could learn. I could learn. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so some some way to um, to share these ideas more broadly and to develop the work so it's a bit more, um, I don't know, concise and stronger. So that's kind of where that piece is at. But in, in terms of your question about balancing, um, it's been extremely challenging. Yeah, I don't. I don't think there has been a balance really this year. I, I feel like I'm working harder and longer than ever with so many rejections and failures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I try to cherish and celebrate each of the wins when, however, I can. I always, I always, always, always post on social media when I uh, am denied a grant or a contest or a writing publication, and also when I'm accepted, because I think it's really important for us to share those without any shame. I have no no shame about the denials and no excessive bragging feelings about the acceptances. You know, I I think we have to normalize the hustle of Mm. that, Mm. of that game and of working as an artist. Um, I mean, I obviously don't even work as an artist full time. I have a normal nine to five job in addition to future prey in terms of balancing the community work and the personal work. Mm -hmm. I, I hope, you know, when we find ourselves in good community, with great artists and, and real friends, often those people will circle back to you and say, hey, it's time for you to work on your art now. Yeah, You mentioned this piece that you want to create. When are you going to do that? Do you have time this weekend? Can we just sit down and work on it together? Um, that's been the only way I've been able to make even the tiniest shred of progress this year. Mm-hmm. I can relate to a lot of those things. Yeah, I think it's great that you kind of share the share the rejections and share the successes. It's, it's, it's cool. I tend to like not share either. <laughs> and then, and then like all of a sudden it's like, Oh, I had this grant and, and now I had this performance and nobody's heard about it. So anyway, but I, there, you know, there was something else that you said that I thought was really interesting as well. And that was, you know, just this idea of this complexity of this idea of the straight line, you know, from point A to point B here, we didn't have this thing and now we have it and isn't life great. Um, and that's not real life. But I think that so often the best way for people to understand that complexity of real life and, and of like, you know, even if there is that success, like, you know, we use that example of, you know, now we do have gay marriage and and that's that's wonderful, of course. But like at the same time that we still have all these other things that are still big problems. And, you know, like in, you know, and, and I'll just use the example, let's say, you know, if you write it, if you if you wrote a book or if you write a novel or you write a play, um, and you have this character of, you know, maybe it's an autistic character and, you know, the, it's like, as you create this, this person um, living in, in a world that may be very much like the real world, um, that's that opportunity for that complexity to be kind of walking and talking and, and speaking to a reader, to an audience in a way that, you know, just the, the data on a page, no matter how well it's produced and how well it's presented and how well it's interpreted for an audience, it's just not the same as when you have like this, you know, this character that we care about staring at you, you know, either from, you know, from the screen of your short film that you don't want to make 
um, or from the pages of your book. That to me is such an opportunity that we have as artists. And, you know, so I, I, I suppose that something I hope for with the podcast is that we, we remind artists of that power and, and we, and we remember how important it is and, and that it's there and we can use it and, and here's what we can use it for. Um, and this conversation with you, I think it's been, you know, really informative. I think folks will, will learn a lot about, you know, maybe some things they haven't thought of and, and, um, and just some great examples of things that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for saying that. And I totally agree. It's, uh, especially when you think of, in, in all writing, but especially in playwriting, there's the traditional three-act structure. It's like, mm-hmm. you're learning about the characters, and then there's a rising action, and some kind of climax, and a nice little conclusion. And um, more and more, I'm, I know that that story format is so familiar, and the hero's journey and all that. It feels so good because it's so familiar. Right. But I am just wondering if there's any opportunity to mess with that and, and and try to expand it to something that feels more true to me, which is that you know you you think something is sorted out, and ten years later it's still haunting you, hmm. or you you have some certain feeling for someone, and you know years later you see them again, and it feels exactly the same as if it were on the same day. You know, things, opportunities to play with time and, and emotion and um, structure are limitless in poetry. And I think that that's why I try to identify myself first and foremost as a poet, hmm. because it, there's so much freedom to be had there. Freedom, that word um, that you used to describe that photograph, I think is, yeah. yeah. I mean, if we can, you know, if there can be more of that freedom, we'll be in a very good place. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. Well, Joni, I think we can wrap it up there. <laughs> There's obviously a lot more we can Great. do. I, ho- I hope we'll get more chances to talk in the future um, and hopefully in person someday. Um, but but thank you so much for, for talking with me about all this and, and sharing all of that with the audience. Um, I appreciate it. And, and thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. And yeah. thank you. Thanks so much to you, Joni. Learn more about Future Prairie at futureprairie.com. And if you listen back to episode four of this volume on this podcast featuring Henri and his Living in the Light project that Future Prairie is sponsoring, you'll know that this organization is doing some ambitious and important work. You can help them out by donating some dollars or sharing the GoFundMe campaign. Go to GoFundMe.com and search for Black Opera at Portland Protests. Or follow the link on the episode page at MoreDevotedly.com. If you value the conversations you hear on More Devotedly, I want to encourage you to give the show a five-star rating and a glowingly positive review on your podcast app. And then tell a friend about the show. You can also join the show email list at MoreDevotedly.com or follow on Instagram Facebook, or Twitter. I produced this episode and composed the music here in Portland, Oregon. I used to let interviews intentionally go for twice as long as I needed. And then it would just take forever to edit. And I was just like, I can't do that anymore. So, Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I had to learn that the hard way, too. <laughs> Same thing. If I was like, oh, it's just such an interesting person. Right. <laughs> There's so much to say. And then later you're like, wait, why did I do this? <laughs> What you're doing is beautiful. Can you do it more devotedly?